Okay, thank you very much, Rabbi Katz. It's a pleasure to be here uh, tonight and uh, to speak in front of all of you and uh, to be able to enjoy your wonderful shul. It's the first time that I've been in this synagogue and Rabbi Katz was showing me the mikvah. So it's really a place of tremendous uh, kedusha, a tr- place of tremendous uh, holiness and uh, spirituality. Uh, and thank you for hosting me. So I wanted to speak about some of the Besden cases that we've been dealing with over the last uh, period of time. And uh, this is a, a special line of work for me since I started out as a lawyer and I also was a trained rabbi. But after working for several years as a lawyer, I felt that it was just not sufficiently rewarding from a, a spiritual perspective. And I was Ocha. I merited around 26 years ago or so to be rescued from uh, the world of uh, the uh, Wall Street uh, law firm uh, universe and uh, to be recruited uh, to volunteer originally at the Bethan of America. And after volunteering, while I was completing my degree in the Yadin Yadin Smicha program at Yeshiva University, I already had received the regular rabbinic ordination, but I wanted to receive the extra rabbinic ordination in Jewish jurisprudence known as Yadin Yadin. Uh, and uh, during my time off to complete that degree, I was recruited to volunteer at the Beth Din. At the conclusion of that year, I was offered to stay on as the director of the Beth Din of America, which is the Beth Din that many of you are familiar with that's associated with the Rabbinical Council of America and the Orthodox Union and Yeshiva University. And I went to my law firm partners at that point in time and told them about my wishes to work for Bethan. And they said, uh, well, well, who's Bethan and what does she do exactly? <laughs> so I explained uh, that uh, this is a Jewish uh, rabbinic uh, court that does arbitration and mediation uh, to uh, resolve Jewish law matters within uh, the uh, Jewish community and to preside over all kinds of uh, ritual matters like uh, Jewish divorces and uh, gayers, uh, conversion matters. And they thought that it's all very interesting and maybe I'm having uh, some sort of a midlife, early midlife crisis, but eventually I would come to my senses and uh, they actually asked me if I would stay at the law firm part-time while I was working at the Betin, figuring that uh, this way I would uh, keep a foot uh, in uh, the uh, organization and eventually come back. Uh, but. Uh, even though it was a very uh, attractive uh, offer to continue to work on the side and make uh, some good money uh, as, uh, as an attorney. They paid better uh, than, than the Bethan did. Uh, nonetheless, uh, the, it was uh, really a, a happy problem that developed that the, the Bethan really started to take off. And we raised the profile of the Bethan within the United States in a way that I don't think had existed before. It wasn't really so much on the radar. If you would have picked up a Jewish newspaper around 25, 26 years ago, you would have read about what's going on in the synagogues and what's going on in the yeshiva day schools and maybe about an Erev or a mikvah, but you wouldn't have read anything about what's going on in the Betin world because it was considered to be some sort of an old-fashioned relic from the past. You'd read about in this week's parsha, this week's parsha, Parshas Yisro, the father-in-law of Moshe Rabbeinu encouraged the, his son-in-law Moshe to develop a rabbinical court system, which is the, the forerunner of the Bethan system that we have today. Uh, but otherwise, people thought of it as uh, something that maybe occurred in the times of old. They had pictures of maybe a little shtetl in Europe where you would have three uh, rabbis with very, very long beards that would be uh, stretching out and rolling on the floor. And uh, otherwise, they did not really think that rabbinical courts were relevant to the contemporary commercial marketplace or to the reality which we lived today. And uh, one of my missions in taking this job at Beth Din uh, was uh, really uh, to uh, change that reality and uh, to uh, underscore the importance of uh, the Beth Din and the relevance of the Beth Din, even in modern times and the important role that Beth Din can play in terms of resolving issues that affect our community. And I'm happy to report that now, 25, 26 years later, after I started this uh, career change, I suppose, I was in my early 30s at the time, uh, that at this point in time, if you pick up a Jewish newspaper, so you will find 
articles about the Beth and what's going on in the rabbinical courts, and people take it pretty much for granted uh, that the rabbinical courts are an integral part of the community. It's true. Most of the articles will describe how terrible the rabbinical courts are and what a terrible job they're doing and why aren't they doing more of this about that and why are they all so corrupt. But it doesn't matter because the main thing is that, that it's a part of our reality. It's on the radar. I remember I knew that we had really made it after uh, I had been working at the, the Betin for a couple of years. And as I said, we started getting so busy that eventually after about a year or so, I gave up my part-time gig at the, uh, at the law firm. And I got a call from the producers of the television show, Law and Order. I assume some of you have heard of the show. Yeah. Okay, so uh, the, they, they, I know you don't own televisions, but there's they, such, such a thing. And, uh, they, and they wanted to know, they were planning to do an episode about a betin, about that, that there are parties that come in front of rabbinical courts, some sort of a rip-roaring custody dispute, and there's a question as to whether the children are really Jewish and uh, therefore have to be raised in Jewish schools, and uh, they have a determination in front of a rabbinical court as to the Jewishness of uh, the uh, of the family of the children. So they wanted to have this rabbinical court uh, be uh, placed in New York, and they wanted to call it the Bethan of New York. And they knew that there was this major rabbinical court. Apparently, we had made the rounds. Um, we had uh, managed to get some publicity. And uh, they knew that there was a Beth, this Bethan of America located in New York. Their legal team told them that this was a little bit too close for comfort in terms of uh, trademark infringement. So uh, they wanted to get the permission of the director of the organization to use the name Bethan of New York without running in, uh, afoul uh, of any trademark uh, problems. So they called me up for permission. I thought this is great um, that we've really, we've really made it now that uh, we're going to be on uh, national television. So I, uh, so I said, of course. You can use the name Bethan of New York. I only have one condition because I, I was a lawyer, so I know how to negotiate a little bit. So they said, okay, what's the condition? I said that I get to write the episode. And I would have done a really good job because, you know, I, I can write a little bit. I have some dramatic uh, flair, but they, um, uh, they, they never got back to me after that for some reason. <laughs> However, I found out subsequently that even though they did not use the name Bethan of New York, they did air this episode, and it did feature a rabbinical court. They just called it House of Israel. They figured that was safe enough and uh, sufficiently removed from the term Betin of America located in New York. Um, but this, to me, was a watershed moment because I realized that we had succeeded in getting the name out. And then what happened was that we started getting some real high-profile cases because we had earned... Um, the respect and recognition of the larger community. So there was a major national bank, a major national bank. I can't give the name of uh, the bank, but one of, one of the, the big ones. Obviously not a Jewish uh, bank, uh, but one of the really, really big banks in America. So they had a major dispute with a person from the Hasidic community, not, not, not from Linden, New Jersey, but somebody in, in the Hasidic community who uh, apparently uh, had planted somebody uh, to work as a teller or something at uh, the bank and was uh, slowly but surely pilfering away millions of dollars in the bank until the, the bank caught up with uh, this uh, scam and they had a claim, a RICO claim, an embezzlement case claim against this person for $35 million. And because of the fact that $35 million was embezzled, that the RICO statute entitles the party that was the victim to treble damages. Treble damages means triple damages. The one thing we don't have in the Jewish tradition, we have that you recover principles, sometimes kefel, you steal from somebody, you pay double, you steal a lamb, you pay four times, if you steal and sell it, you pay four times as much, an ox five times, three times they don't really have, but that's uh, secular law has its own um, mechanisms. 
and uh, the um, and they wanted to bring this case in the Betin of America, where I was working as director. I said to the bank, you're a non-Jewish bank. You can go to a regular court, get your treble damages. Why come to the Betin? They said, because if we go to a regular court, we'll get the full $105 million, but we won't be able to collect a penny because this fellow is so good at hiding all of his money in various charities that he had. Uh, and there are billions of dollars of uncollected judgments in this country every single year. But if we take him to bet, then maybe you'll award a lot less, but we're more confident that he'll pay. I mean, I hope they were right in their estimation uh, because he will want to be in good standing in the Jewish community. And uh, therefore, since you command so much respect within the community, um, we decided that we would rather go to you. And uh, to me, that was really a, a very... Um, uh, encouraging uh, statement that I realized that even a national bank would bring a hundred million dollar case in the Bethan. Uh, I was uh, just um, ab absolutely uh, blown away uh, by the potential for Kiddush Hashem, for really sanctifying God's name in the work that we were doing. And I remember we're sitting around and the first thing that we try to do when we hear a case at the Bethan is we try to mediate the dispute so we won't have to, to hand down a decision. We try to make peace between the parties. One of the hallmarks of a betin is to do the fnim mishur sedin, that you try to encourage the parties to go above and beyond the letter of the law. In fact, that is actually part of the mandate that was given over by Yisro to his son-in-law. He says in this week's parasha, says, Vodatem, Vodatalahem es aderach when you establish the court system, you should teach people the way in which they should go and also the actions that they're supposed to perform. And Rashi says, what are the actions they're supposed to perform? The actions are Zadin. They should follow Jewish law. But what they should actually do, you try to get people to make compromises and to go above and beyond the letter of the law. The Gemara in Baba Metziah says that the Yerushalayim was destroyed because they decided cases according to Din Torah. According to the Torah, so you, the Gemara asks, what's so bad about that? That's the whole purpose of why we have Beth Din. Parties shouldn't go to civil courts. They shouldn't decide cases according to secular. They should decide matters according to Jewish law. We have a wonderful, beautiful, divine system of justice. So the Gemara says, would, they, would it be better for the people to just have their cases decided according to witchcraft? What do you mean? What was so bad to decide according to Din Torah? So the Gemara says, no, no. It means means the parties wouldn't budge from their positions. Every single person would say, oh, I want every single penny. I'm not budging an inch. And they did not conduct themselves according to, the, according to above and beyond the letter of the law. So that's one of the main things that we try to do is that we encourage parties to settle with each other, to make compromises. So that's what I was doing with these parties as well. So I was sitting in a conference room. I remember this was in Los Angeles, California. That's where they agreed to have the meeting. I was flown out to a big conference center on Wilshire Boulevard. And um, this, this fellow, the defendant, he said, I would be more than happy to pay you back everything that I embezzled. He didn't deny it. You know, sometimes you get caught. So he was an honest fellow, at least when he was caught. <laughs> so he said, but I just don't have so much money. I don't have $100 million. I don't even have $35 million. I can't even pay Karen. However, I have about $6 million, whatever it was. It was in the single digits. This is all that I have, but I'm prepared to pay you every penny. And I will take an oath to show you that I am telling the truth, I will take an oath on the holiest object in our tradition so that you can trust me. What's the holiest object in our tradition? A Torah scroll, a Sefer Torah. He would take an oath on a holy Sefer Torah. So there was an executive, a senior vice president of the bank that was there at the meeting. It was the, this was a big deal, so the, the, the president showed up too. So the senior second-in-command, senior vice president of the bank, said to, the, his, uh, said to his, uh, his boss, he said, that sounds pretty good to me. I would trust him. If he takes an oath on his holy Torah scroll in the Sefer Torah, I would believe that he's telling the truth. And I thought, that's better than me. Um, so I said that uh, the problem is that we don't allow oath-taking in Bate Din in rabbinical courts nowadays, even though there's much in the Talmud about oath-taking. 
But nowadays we just figure out how much should a person pay in order to be exempt from an oath that he would otherwise have to take. We monetize what the oath would otherwise be worth for somebody to avoid having to take. But the reason we don't allow oaths is because we have a tradition. It's the third commandment. We're going to be reading about uh, this as Shabbos. You're not allowed to take God's name in vain. When that commandment was announced to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai, so the Gemara says, the entire world shook. It was high up on the Richter scales. A giant earthquake through the entire universe that occurred because of the severity of the transgression of somebody taking God's name in vain and pronouncing a false oath. So we said, we're afraid. It could be that he's convinced that this is truthful, but maybe he'll get it a little bit wrong. Maybe he'll forget about some Swiss account he has somewhere. Maybe, you know. So we said, so we're not going to allow the oath. I told him I can't allow the oath, and I would have been able to resolve the case right then and there, go across the street to one of the synagogues, take out a safe toe. We could have taken care of the whole thing. But the bank officers, the bank um, the executives, were so impressed that, that uh, I was not uh, going to treat them any differently than I would treat other parties. I was very candid and straightforward about what Jewish law strictly allows and does not allow. So it didn't take so much longer before we were able to effectuate another mediated uh, solution between the parties and we were able to uh, come to a, to a resolution in, in the case. Um, and I realized that, that we really could, would be called upon to deal with major issues of importance to the community. We had that potential. We went to work to figure out what are some of the things that can really make a difference in the community. So one of the first things that we did was uh, to uh, uh, publicize and uh, to uh, promulgate a prenuptial agreement uh, that parties can sign when they get married uh, in order to uh, resolve and prevent Aguna problems. Because one thing that I inherited, I went into this line of work because I had been a corporate attorney. I was a corporate real estate attorney, like you know, your typical the nice Jewish boy who goes into law. Uh, and um, but it was very boring. Uh, uh, so, but I wanted to do that, this type of work, sort of in the commercial business sphere, uh, in a Jewish law setting. I had no real interest or experience in matrimonial law. In fact, my firm didn't really dabble in matrimonial law at all. We dealt with like big closings, things of that. Uh, variety, mergers and acquisitions, Remix and REITs, uh, things of, of that uh, variety. Um, but, but I discovered that this was a major part of the bets in work, was to resolve these cases where couples were getting divorced. You had, uh, for the most part, recalcitrant husbands who would refuse to give a get, a Jewish bill of divorce, to their wife, unless uh, the wife would pay them uh, some exorbitant sum of money. I remember I even dealt with a Wall Street personality who said, sure, I'll give my wife a get if she gives me $150,000. And I said, aren't you embarrassed to, to make such a demand? That's extortion. He says, no, there's no statute against it. I'm allowed to do it. Uh, and in fact, we even uh, explored at one point in time whether we should have a statute um, that uh, should uh, be drafted and should be passed in the New York State Legislature that if somebody would make such a, an outlandish demand uh, that they should uh, be uh, charged uh, for extortion uh, as, a, as, a, as a criminal offense. Uh, and we actually sent a Shiloh. There was a group of rabbis and uh, lay people who sent us a question to Rav Yosef Shalom El-Yashiv, who was the reigning Gadol Ador, a major rabbinic personality in the world at that time. We sent it all the way to Israel. There was a group of rabbinim who got together, including the late Rabbi Fayyabu Kohn, and Yibad Lechaim, Rabbi Leibish Landesman, who was a major dying for Munchi, and Rabbi Mordechai Willig was part of it. And I was born in as a, as a greener, as a, as, as a, a young, um, young whippersnapper who was just kind of getting wet behind the ears. Um, but at the uh, the, the, one of the questions that we were trying to resolve at that point in time, some of the, uh, some of the challenges that had been raised by Rabbi Yoshiv against the legislation called the Get Law that was passed in New York that Rabbi Yoshiv didn't like. Because it said that if a husband refuses to give a get, so the court can ream him and charge him to pay money that he wouldn't otherwise have had to pay 
that, that if the estate was good, the marital estate would be split 50-50, now it's going to be split 80-20, or the wife would get 100% and the husband would get nothing if he refused to give his wife a gift. So Abel Yashiv said, that is penalizing him. And if you penalize a man in order to get him to give a get, that's considered to be a coerced get and it's no good. So we were trying to make changes to the law. And one of our suggestions is, why don't we have this extortion statute? So it's very interesting. You won't like this, but it's very interesting. I'm just warning you ahead of time. That Babo Yoshev came back and he said, no, no, that's a bad idea because you'll end up hurting the women because there are many cases that get resolved when the woman actually agrees to pay something and that way she's able to receive a get. It's not right. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, since that does resolve a certain number of the cases, um, so it's better not to have a statute of this sort because it's not going to end up getting her to get. It's just going to end up preventing her from getting again in certain cases. So I just want to tell you, I never agreed to any kind of an extortion demand in all of my years working at the best. And whenever there was such a demand made, I'm dealing with a case right now, is such a, a request, uh, so to speak, uh, that is being uh, registered. We always say, you have a claim you have a claim for money, we're happy to adjudicate your claim. You think that you're genuinely owed $150,000, we'll adjudicate it. Maybe you owed $150,000, but you know what? Maybe you're owed zero. Maybe you owe her $150,000. She could bring a charge against you. We'll adjudicate the claim and you'll go along with whatever we decide according to fairness and justice. But you have no right to demand money in return for a get. So that's always been my position. There was a fellow in Brooklyn who developed a reputation that he, uh, he actually contributed money to these cases if it would help uh, to get a man to give a get, he would actually come up uh, and, and give over some money. I always, it was a tzaddik, no question, but I refused to work with him. I refused to, to, to work for those channels because to me, that's not what Betin is all about. Betin is about justice. It's not about furthering injustice. And uh, therefore, uh, wouldn't, we wouldn't allow um, this, uh, this type of, uh, of exercise. Um, so that was uh, with respect uh, to uh, the question of the get law that was raised with uh, that was raised with uh, with Rabbi Yoshev uh, at the time, uh, and um, uh, and uh, there were a number of uh, different uh, questions um, that had to be uh, dealt with in connection with the prenuptial agreement. So the prenuptial agreement, we worked very very hard to have an agreement that would be completely acceptable halachically in terms of not being a penalty, but where the card parties would agree to two things. Number one, they would agree that in the event that there would be a dispute between the parties, they would, regarding the giving of a get, uh, things wouldn't work out in the marriage, which we know that not all marriages work out. We always pray that every marriage should work out, but it doesn't always, it's not always that way. The Torah has uh, a, uh, a section that deals with the giving of a get, so we know that it is certainly something which is a possibility. It could happen. So we stipulated that the parties would agree that the Betin has the authority to decide whether a get should be given. And the beauty of that agreement is that even though normally the Betin cannot assert jurisdiction regarding religious matters, this is a, free, a, a country where there's a separation between religion and state, Nonetheless, if they sign an arbitration agreement that gives the Betin that authority, we would have that authority, at least with respect to a get, and a court would respect whatever decision uh, we would issue. Secondly, it has a monetary provision that says that the husband agrees he's obligated to support his wife anyway, according to Jewish law. So, he is, so we, we quantify a sum of money in the event that the husband and wife would be separated from each other, he waives any defenses that he might have from otherwise needing to pay a support obligation to his wife. And he agrees that he will support his wife to the tune of $150 a day. $150 a day is calibrated to be basically equivalent to what is a standard cost of living in this country for food, clothing, and shelter. We actually did research. This is 20 years ago. Maybe we should raise the amount at this point in time. But we did a research to see what was the standard of living in different communities, and it came out to that amount. We, 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 we revisited the issue about eight years ago. It wasn't that much more, so we didn't change. But every few years, it's good for us to revisit and see what the amount is. And there's an adjustment that's allowed in the agreement itself for um, a cost of a living index uh, changes. So uh, this is not coercive because it's simply a memorialization 
of an existing support obligation, which you're allowed to do according to Jewish law. So what we did was we worked with the major leading rabbinic authorities throughout the world, including at the time of Rabbi Yosef, and uh, with uh, Goldberg, and we've gotten the endorsements of new uh, and up-and-coming uh, rabbinic figures uh, from uh, the modern age, including Yibadu L'chaim Tovim of Shlita has given his endorsement to this agreement so that we can make sure it has the requisite halakha credentials and it's also something that works legally and uh, therefore it's something that we felt that one of the traditional roles of the veteran throughout all of the centuries from the time it was established by Yisro was to solve the problems of the community, to be proactive in terms of being a positive force for the community. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu said to Yisro, he said, all these people are coming to me from morning until night. They weren't only coming in from morning until night to settle their neighbor disputes about who should cut down a tree that is encroaching on somebody else's property. It says, they come to me, they come to me to daven for their sick. And to help them with everything that's missing in their lives. The, the job of the Betin is to help the community with respect to, to everything that could be potentially problematic in their lives and to provide solutions. So we felt certainly in terms of making um, aguna uh, resolutions, this is something you find in the Gemara. To do what you can to see to it that the daughters of Israel not be agunot. And you should know that we have resolved hundreds and hundreds of cases, and maybe over a thousand cases, because as of 15 years ago, I had counted over a hundred cases. And that's 15 years ago, and there have been another 15 years that I haven't been counting anymore because I haven't been working in the Betin of America office. I'm still, uh, I, I've been working in other places, um, so I don't, I don't count anymore. Um, but even as of 15 years ago, I counted over 100 cases where a get was given in a timely fashion because the parties had entered into a prenuptial agreement. And I make it an absolute sine qua non if I am going to officiate at a wedding that they have to sign the agreement and the Rabbinical Council of America adopted a resolution a few years ago that every single member of the RCA is obligated to utilize the prenuptial agreement whenever a couple gets married because you're saving lives. You're saving lives. Um, uh, one of the, the uh, first cases I remember when I was at the Betin after we had popularized the agreement, so a man and woman came in to, for the giving of a get and, uh, the, uh, and the man said um, uh, that um, he was only there uh, because uh, they had signed uh, the prenuptial agreement uh, that said uh, that if he doesn't give a get, that he might have to be on the uh, hook to pay this $150 a day. Uh, and one of the, the first questions in the get procedure is, are you giving the get of your own free will? So he said, does that count? My own free will? I don't want to give the get. He became a Balchuba, not a real sincere Balchuba, but the girl was in Stern College. He wanted to marry her. He wasn't so observant. He said, okay, I'll be observant. After a year or so of the marriage, it fell apart. And he said, I don't need to be observant anymore. He only became observant for her to whatever degree he was observant. And he said now he wanted to marry some uh, non-Jewish young lady uh, who did not care at all whether he would give a get to his uh, Jewish wife. And he said, I have no interest in doing anything that would make her happy because I hate her guts. Uh, So therefore, I wouldn't give her the get. But my lawyer told me because I signed this agreement, I might be on the hook, so I should give the get. So is that in my own free will? So I said, well, yes, because you have a free will decision to make. You can either decide that you want to remain married according to Jewish law and support her to the tune of $150 a day. That's a free will decision. Or you can make a free will decision that you'd rather be relieved of that obligation and give her a gift. So which free will decision you want to make? Say, you put it that way, okay? My free will decision is I want to give the gift. So I said, good. Um, but this is what the prenuptial agreement accomplishes. And this is why it has been such an important uh, and essential boon um, to the Jewish community. Now, we deal with other special types of the Gittin situations, including one that just came up right now. Came up right now when um, the, the war broke, October 7th, uh, war in, in Eretz Yisrael. God willing, it should be over soon in a good way that we should emerge victorious and the hostages should all be released uh, safely back home. Uh, so when the, the war broke out, 
So some of the reservists from the Israeli army were living here in the United States. They were called uh, up uh, to go to Israel and uh, to join the battle. Uh, and some of them contacted uh, their local rabbinical courts in different places in the country, where in Chicago there's a rabbinical court in Florida. So somebody contacted the rabbinical court in Florida. The rabbinical court in Florida contacted me as a, as a, uh, as a representative of one of the more major rabbinical courts in, in the country. I work for the Chicago Rabbinical Council and also for the Betin uh, of America and wanted to know, do you have any of those wartime get authorizations? Ooh, what's a wartime get authorization? You get called up to the army, suddenly you wanted to divorce your wife? That doesn't sound so nice. No, it works like this. So from time immemorial, even from the days of David HaMelech, from the days of David HaMelech, um, they, they had a practice, and this is recorded in the Gemara, they had a practice that everybody would go out to every single husband would write a get to their wife. Why would they write a get to their wife? Because in the event that, let's say, they would be missing an action in a battle, so the wife might end up being in an Aguna situation, because she wouldn't know whether her husband was dead or alive. There would be no way to certify that the husband was definitely dead. And then she would basically be a widow who just would be stuck since she didn't know if the husband was dead or alive, even though he probably would be dead, but who knows for sure. And therefore she couldn't go on with her life. So this way you have a get. And when he would come back from the battlefield, he would just remarry her. Now, the problem with that is doing again in that particular way and I'm saying this in shorthand because there were a number, there was one opinion that was a conditional get, uh, but according to Rabbeinu Tam, it was an absolute get. But the problem with that would be, let's say the husband would be a Kohen. The husband would be a Kohen. He wouldn't be able to remarry the wife if he'd come back from war. There was a second problem. The second problem was, let's say one of the parties would change their mind that, uh, that after the get would be given, the husband would come back from war. The wife would say, I, I don't want to marry you again. Or the husband would say, I, I found you know, somebody overseas and I don't want to marry you again. So it wouldn't necessarily be, be so pleasant. And thirdly, there could be uh, certain morale issues. If a get would be given, the person didn't have the like, security of knowing that, that they, had, they had a wife at home and a wife who was praying and thinking of him and so forth. Um, so therefore, there was a new version of this wartime get that was devised around 150 years ago. It's written about by Rab Malkiel Tannenbaum, the author of the Divrei Malkiel. Other authors wrote about this as well, which is that, that there wouldn't be a get actually given. Yeah, the get wouldn't be given, but there would be a get that would be authorized, meaning that the husband would sign a document and he would also verbally declare the contents of the document in front of a rabbinical court. And he would say, in the event that I don't return from the battlefield within 18 months or so, uh, so then I am hereby right now authorizing the following scribe to write again on my behalf, the following witnesses to sign the get, and the following agent to deliver again on my behalf. But it's not going to be written unless I don't return for 18 months. This way, if he does return, so then the get was never written. They were never divorced altogether. It would only be written when it would really need to be written. And either he would be dead, in which case she'd be a widow, or he'd be alive, in which case she would be a divorcee once the get would be uh, written. And then he would be, uh, then she would be allowed to, to remarry at that uh, point in time. And I did several of these authorizations during the Iraqi war, uh, when I was at the Tibetan of America a number of years ago for people who were called up to be chaplains in the army, some who were called up to be soldiers in the army. Thank God we never needed to act upon any of these forms. But now there were people who wanted to sign these forms here as well. It's not done, interestingly enough. It's not done as a matter of course within the IDF. And the reason for that is because they, they are still worried about the morale issue. If they're going to have all of the married soldiers sign this form, so they're worried that uh, some of them might uh, feel a little bit jittery about the possibility of divorce when they're going out to war. So they don't make it standard policy. It's a little bit of controversy amongst the rabbis in Israel, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Rabbi Eliezer Yehuda Waldenberg, I think, still felt that it was a proper thing to do. So some soldiers will do it with their own personal rabbis. Rabbi Yosha Weiss told the story of several soldiers who came to him to do it, and he said he didn't want to do it. He himself didn't want to go against whatever is sort of the standard policy amongst the, the IDF in Israel. But he said instead he would give all of those men a bracha, he'd give them a blessing that they would all be guaranteed uh, that they would come home safely and therefore wouldn't be needed altogether. And then he would turn afterwards to Ribbon Shalom, he'd turn to God and say, 
Listen, I gave them a bracha, so please, uh, you kind of have to deliver here. Uh, so apparently the stipler going did, did the same thing from what, uh, from what I read. But we don't have that, that policy decision here in America. In America, these soldiers didn't have the luxury of going to Rav Asher Weiss. So they were turning to uh, the, uh, the Betin. This particular soldier in Florida and some others uh, turned to their local Betin to provide such a form. So the question was like this that one of the things that happens, and we see this happening with the current war. I have a couple of nephews in the army. I'm sure there are many here who have relatives who are in the army as well. What happens is they go out to war, but they allow furloughs, that they'll allow them a weekend off to be with their wives, to be with their family and so forth. So what happens when after the authorization has been made, they then live together with the wife afterwards? Does that cancel to get authorization. Normally, a husband writes an authorization, divorces his wife, and then he lives with his wife afterwards. That's viewed as a cancellation, as a nullification of uh, the original authorization. So it's the same true over here. So Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Alevi Herzog, who is the first Ashkenazic chief rabbi uh, in the modern state of Israel. So he wrote a chubi, said, no, that normally would be true, but it's not true in this particular case. Why is it not true in this particular case? Because normally, when the husband and wife would live together after the get authorization, it would constitute a nullification because it is a contradiction from the initial intent. The initial intent is husband hates his wife, wants to divorce her. And then they live together, so now he likes her again. So therefore, that's a contradiction, it's a nullification. But here, when the get authorization is being written, it's being written out of love. So therefore, when they live together afterwards, it's not a contradiction and it does not constitute a nullification. And you're right, in the authorization form, even if there will be a furlough, we'll be together for a few days, that will not constitute a nullification. And my wife shall be believed like a hundred witnesses to say that I did not nullify the authorization of the get, and that's the way that it works, and we rely upon that formulation. So the question was, in this case, this fellow in Florida who um, was going off uh, to uh, the, the war, uh, he wanted to sign one of these forms, but he had another idea in his head. He said, you know what? He told his local rabbi, my wife and I are not really getting along so well anyway. So uh, this is a nice opportunity that I'll also do this get authorization. We'll see what happens. But it's kind of something that I was planning to do anyway. But he was being called up to leave the following week. He was going to get on the airplane maybe Sunday afternoon, something like that. And he wanted to take care of it before Shabbos. That's when he had more time. He wouldn't be rushing off to the airport. He wanted to take care of it before Shabbos, but they would still be living at least in the same home over Shabbos. So the rabbi called me up. He said, can I do this? And I said, no, you can't do the authorization form and then have them living with each other afterwards because in this case, it would not constitute a continuation of the original, um, it, it would not, of the original intent um, to say that they're living together um, because once they're living under the same roof, that's considered to be a happy thing, but the original authorization is being done um, on some level uh, based on an antipathy towards his wife. So since it would be a contradiction to have the authorization in this case and then to live together afterwards, therefore the only time he could write this get authorization would be on his way to the airport, even though it might not be as convenient, that would be the only time it could be done. So these questions come up even nowadays these old types of forms that we had dating back to the Muhammad, to the wars that were waged by David Amelech, still comes up today. The same way that you have all of these sugyas, you have all of these discussions in the Talmud about a boat that sinks um, and there are uh, husbands who are on the boat on a business trip and nobody has uh, saw them uh, uh, drown in the river are they, and their remains were not recovered. Are the widows, are the wives who are presumed to be widows, are they allowed to remarry even though we never identified the remains? And that's the whole big discussion. You have a witness who sees the person go into the water, they didn't come out of the water. Can you assume that they didn't come out of the water a mile uh, uh, f- further down or that they didn't come up or come all together and we distinguish, we say, well, if it's a circumscribed body of water where you can see the boundaries and you didn't see the person come up, you can assume they drowned. But if it's like an ocean where it's not a circumscribed body of water, so then you have to be worried that the waves carried the person far away, maybe they still survived, and then you wouldn't be able to rely on the testimony. And those sugyus, those arcane and picayune discussions in the Talmud came up in a very tangible way for me 
very shortly after I, a couple of years after I started working in the Bethlehem world, I think I started as director in the summer of 1998, and we know what happened in September 2001 with 9-11, where oh, there, unfortunately when these twin towers came crashing down into the ground, so there were remains of, of individuals, of men who worked there that were tragically pulverized into the ground, and uh, they wouldn't be so easily identified, and we were called upon uh, to resolve approximately a dozen cases in the aftermath of 9-11, and we had to work with all of uh, the Talmudic discussions and figure out how do you apply it in modern times. The Talmud talks about, well, another situation is a person falls into a fiery furnace, and you saw the person go into the fiery furnace. You can assume, at least if it was a deep fiery furnace, they couldn't possibly have emerged. So we had to figure out if there was testimony. Somebody spoke on the phone with an individual who was on the 100th floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. There was no way a person could have escaped. So if we know they were there after the plane hit the, the North Tower um, that they were spoken to on the telephone afterwards, only one of two things would have happened. Either they would have been incinerated by the flames or they would have fallen to their death from a hundred stories. That's equivalent to falling into the fiery furnace where you know it's a sure thing the person would have died. And we were dealing with these horribly tragic types of questions as well. But the families were very appreciative of it because of the fact that we were able to give them a Jewish law direction to deal with this terrible tragedy and enable them to move on with their lives in the midst of incredibly challenging circumstances. And one of the other things that emerged from the 9-11 tragedy, but we also deal with in other circumstances, including with respect to the COVID pandemic, was that sometimes you have as a result of uh, tragedies or epidemics, things of this sort, people who might die at a particular very young age uh, and leave no children. And if you have a man who dies, he's married and he leaves no children and he has at least one brother. So then even if we know that he died and the wife is a widow, she's still not allowed to get remarried unless she performs, anybody know? Chalitza, exactly. Unless she performs chalitza, which is the removal of a special shoe from her brother-in-law's usually right foot, if that's his dominant foot. Um, and it also involves a certain amount of expectoration in front of him uh, and the recital of uh, certain verses. Uh, and that's something that is very clearly prescribed step by step in the Torah, in Parashas Kitetze. Uh, and that's something that we had to do. We had two cases in the aftermath of the World Trade Center tragedy where the men were cut down in their prime, didn't have any children yet, left brothers, and we had to perform a chalitza. And we had one case, unfortunately, in a corona case, where a man died very young, was in a similar circumstance, and so we needed to uh, perform a chalitza. Uh, and I remember in one case in particular that stands out in my head because the brother who walked in to do chalitza was only 16 years old because he was doing chalitza because the, the, his, his brother had, was only in his early 20s when he was cut down, and this other brother was a younger brother. And in a chalitza ceremony, I also have to ask a similar question, which is, are you doing this of your own free will? And he said, no, because I'd rather that my brother still be alive. Uh, and it was just this tragic moment. I didn't like what to say. I said, well, you know, given the reality of the circumstances, Stance. Is this something that, that you're willing to do? And he said, yes, yes. Okay. And, it, and it was very, very difficult for him, but he did it. He went through with it to, 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 to stand there with a special shoe and watch as the uh, sister-in-law uh, was uh, removing the shoe and then spitting in his presence and doing everything that needed to, to, to be done. Um, but, but he took care of it. And then there was, a, um, there was a postscript. The postscript was that approximately nine years later, I was living at that point in the Bronx. I was living in Riverdale, New York. I moved to Chicago about 10 and a half years ago. Um, so at that point, I was invited by some family in the community. They were marrying off their daughter. I knew the family. I knew the couple. They were marrying off their daughter. I was invited to a Sheva Bachos. They needed a minion and a Dvar Torah. So I was invited to, to, to the Sheva Bachos. And uh, I'm uh, sitting there. And at that time, I was serving as the dean of Yeshiva. At Yeshiva at Rabbeinu Yitzchak Elchanan at YU. And uh, the boy uh, walks in, he's probably about in his early 20s or so, and uh, the boy walks in and uh, he looks at me and he says, oh, I know you. And I say to the boy, I'm sorry, what year are you in? I figure he's a YU student and dude, I don't know them all by name. I felt bad. He said, no, no, I'm not a YU student. So, okay, it was a little bit of a relief. But he said, uh, but, but, uh, but I know you from a different context. How do you know me? 
So I know you because nine years ago I was in your office at the rabbinical court, and you remember that chalitza? I'm the, the boy, that teenage boy who performed the chalitza. So I got up and uh, I, I thought, wow, talk about hashkacha, talk about divine providence, that uh, this, uh, I, I, I should be invited to this Sheva Bachos. I got up and I spoke about what a, what a stellar personality this fellow was, and I said, but I can't tell you how I know that. Uh, and uh, I, left it, I left it at that. I preserved confidentiality, but it was um, God telling me that uh, th- there's, there's a point to, to, to what we're doing. There's a point to what we're doing at the Betin. Uh, and uh, this is in a variety of different areas. Rabbi Katz mentioned we have very interesting uh, contemporary modern-day Gerus issues, especially now with the different uh, uh, assisted reproductive technologies. When we deal with conversion cases, you deal with surrogate motherhood now. There's a big question Oh, do you have to perform conversion on a child born through surrogate motherhood if the genetic mother who donated the egg was not Jewish? Or let's say the genetic uh, the mother is uh, the mother who's going to be raising the child, but she couldn't carry the child to term, so she hired a surrogate carrier. So is the gestational mother considered to be the halakhic mother for purposes of conversion? And the rabbis say it's really not clear. There are sources that indicate in one direction, there are sources that indicate the other direction. So therefore, if either one of those uh, two, uh, of those, uh, two mothers, uh, of those two individuals, uh, is uh, not Jewish, uh, so then we, then we perform the conversion. Then the question is, but let's say that the parents in this particular case come to the Orthodox Bethlehem, but they're not themselves so observant. Normally, you only convert a child if the parents are going to be observant, they're going to uh, raise the child according to a lifetime of Torah. So the Betzin can endow uh, the ceremony with uh, the uh, intention that uh, they can assert uh, and testify uh, before the Almighty that uh, it's appropriate to convert this child because the child will be raised in a, in a Torah environment. So can you bend the rules a little bit in this particular case where the family... Uh, basically is a Jewish, you have two Jewish parents, but the mother needed a little bit of help in bringing the child into the world. Very, very tough types of questions of that sort. I won't give the answer because it's complicated and we're running out of time, but just to give you a little bit of a sampling of, uh, what, we, of what we deal with. Um, so that's just an overview. Rabbi Katz asked me to give an overview and to leave a few minutes for some additional questions, so I want to do that because there's so much of that uh, that we can discuss, but thank you for your time. Yes? It's a brilliant question, and the answer is yes, the rabbis have thought of everything. So there's a built-in <laughs> clause that says uh, that in the event uh, that uh, these, uh, any of these individuals are either um, uh, uh, not alive or unavailable, I think the term is they're either unwilling or unavailable uh, to, um, uh, to, to serve, unavailable could be that they're dead, so then I appoint to anybody who sees this document Anybody who sees this document can serve as a scribe. Any, any two people who see this document can serve as witnesses. And any other person who sees the document can serve as an agent. Uh, because uh, the Mishnah says a person who is inside of a, uh, of a cavernous pit um, and uh, they uh, are about to die and they're afraid that the wife will be an aguna, they can say, anybody who hears my voice is authorized to write again and sign again and give it again to my wife. Uh, and that's considered to be good enough. Why? Because that's considered to be a specific enough delegation that it counts as agency. If, you don't, if you're not appointing the whole world, you say, anybody who hears my voice. So as long as it's a circumscribed population, that's considered to be good enough for agency purposes. Yes? We do get requests from non-Jewish parties, and uh, of course we have emblazoned in the Chicago Rabbinical Council courtroom, uh, we have emblazoned uh, that uh, slogan or that excerpt from the Torah and Parashat Shoftim, 
Tzedek Tzedek Terdof, so everybody can look at it and understand that's what we're all about. Justice, justice, you should pursue it. And why does it say justice twice? One explanation is that we're supposed to follow Jewish law, but we're also supposed to effectuate compromise and harmony through pshara, as I mentioned. But the other explanation, which I really like as well, is it means don't settle for just any rabbinical court. Make sure it's a good and qualified rabbinical court because yesh for yesh. It's important, number one, to go to a good rabbinical court, but it's important as a community to see to it that you establish good rabbinical, uh, rabbinical courts. Um, but when, when we do have non-Jewish parties who come to us, um, it's, in my experience, it's always been a case where the other party is Jewish. I haven't had a case where two non-Jewish, where two non-Jewish parties come and they say, Let's adju- let the, please adjudicate our dispute. Maybe if word gets out a little bit, maybe they assume that we can't do that. The truth of the matter is we could, uh, but, but, I, but I, haven't, I haven't had that case. Um, we did have a case a few months ago where there was a dispute regarding a competition clause um, in, a, uh, in a contract between a chef and the restaurant where the chef was a non-Jewish chef, the restaurant was a Jewish restaurant, and uh, there was a non-compete clause where the chef said that to agree that for a few years after the contract, he would not work for a different competing establishment or open up a different competing establishment. And then at a certain point in time, um, uh, several years later, he did in fact open up a, a separate kosher establishment. He's a non-Jewish uh, uh, chef who happened to work there and, the, and he brought and, and, and they accused him of violating the non-compete clause and he said, I want to have it adjudicated in the Bethan. He, he wanted it to be adjudicated in the Bethan. And we adjudicated the case. We adjudicated the case according to secular law. Because since he was a law-abiding uh, non-Jewish citizen, so the Rabbah writes, he's entitled under those circumstances to have the case adjudicated by the Bethan in accordance with secular law. He's not bound by Jewish law. He's not a Jewish person. So we decided according, we interpret, uh, it helps that I'm a trained attorney. We interpreted the, the contract according to provisions of secular law. It happens that he continued working there for a long time after the contract expired. Um, and there was never a renewal of the contract, nor did the contract say that if he would continue working, it would just continue to be renewed as an at-will contract. He just continued to work without any contractual provision, according to secular law. In Illinois, anyway, it turned out that the contract essentially expired when he stopped working. Afterwards, it was just some sort of a verbal agreement. So the three-year period only kicked, was only counted for when the contract term actually ended, not when, when he stopped working at the restaurant. And therefore, by the time he opened up the new establishment, the non-compete clause was no longer applicable. Wow, that's, that's fascinating. <laughs> but I think it makes a lot of sense when in this world of burgeoning alternative dispute resolution, when people are really looking for more economically uh, uh, sensible and, uh, and efficient uh, methodologies for resolving disputes other than the regular uh, court system. Okay, maybe we'll take one more question and then we'll wrap it up. Okay, but I see two people who I really want to take their <laughs> questions. So I will take two questions. Okay, and then we'll wrap it up. Go ahead. It's a very good question. Generally speaking, the, the Jewish law is such a rich system of uh, sources and discussions uh, that you're usually able to find uh, some sort of a path forward. But there have been cases where we've consulted with other rabbinic bodies and specialists in terms of resolving cases, even with the 9-11 Aguna cases. We consulted with Rav Avadya Yosef and Rav Zalman again with Rav Natsu Greenblatt. Um, so you have to know with whom to consult. There was a case where I consulted 
where the Bezdin is Sivas Chayim in Matersdorf in Yerushalayim because they have a certain expertise in dealing with a certain complicated uh, types of partnership uh, disputes. And I wanted the, their counsel. So generally there is a, a, path, a path forward uh, in all of the different cases. But something might be totally out of our jurisdiction. You might have something which is in the criminal realm. And uh, that's really outside of Bethan jurisdiction. That's more of a governmental task. So some, I once had a case where I saw, I thought it was just a, a regular monetary uh, dispute regarding how certain funds that had been held by a certain shamish in a, uh, a certain shul in Brooklyn that, that uh, was occupied by uh, uh, Mexicans um, and the shamish suddenly died mysteriously. And there was a question what to do with the, the funds. So I thought it was a monetary case. And then I saw, just based on the ferocity uh, of uh, the way in which I was being approached by uh, all of uh, the worshippers uh, or members uh, of this, uh, this quote-unquote uh, synagogue or shtibol um, in terms of uh, their money and uh, some of the things I was hearing about how he didn't just die, but it seemed like he was actually killed, uh, that I was dealing with uh, what I called the Mexican mafia murder mystery matter. And um, uh, this was no longer... Uh, a, a regular civil monetary case. I realized I'm dealing with a murder case and it was uh, beyond uh, my purview. And I uh, said to the parties, I'm sorry, I can't deal with it anymore. This really needs to go to the criminal authorities. So sometimes you need to know when something is outside of your purview. Last, last question. Yes. Where the wife remarries? What do you mean? The, the prenuptial agreement, uh, the prenuptial agreement only requires the uh, the husband to pay as long as the two parties are married according to Jewish law. You mean if the wife would remarry against Jewish law? I'm sorry. No, it, it, it does provide. It gives the option to the parties to have the betin decide all financial disputes between the parties. If we would give an award of spousal support. Uh, let's say it would be an ongoing amount, uh, so obviously that would, uh, that would expire. He, any ongoing support um, that, that he would have to uh, pay um, uh, post-marriage would obviously expire uh, upon the, the point in which uh, the wife would, would remarry. It is, it depends on the circumstances, but we do have more and more cases. One of the largest burgeoning areas to practice in the Bethan today, so it's good you brought this up, is uh, the number of parties who come to the bet that I must have around 15 cases, without exaggeration, at least 15 cases right now, in the Chicago Rabbinical Council where the parties have come to the bet and to resolve all aspects of their divorce, not only the get and not only the obligations in the prenuptial agreement if there is one, but all matters of the dissolution of the marriage, including the distribution of the marital assets, including spousal support, including child support, and including parenting arrangements. Um, so we have many, many cases now. The parties have woken up uh, to the fact uh, that uh, they uh, can get uh, much uh, more effective and um, economic uh, treatment uh, at the Betzid and more consonant with their value system as well when it's done uh, by the Jewish courts. And of course, we know there's even a prohibition of going to secular courts. So uh, it's really all come uh, together um, and we've developed a whole new division at the Chicago Rabbinical Council uh, just to deal with these uh, types of cases. I'll just, um, uh, uh, I'll just conclude with the, uh, with the blessing that, that was uh, given um, uh, w- w- by Yisro uh, when he advised the Moshe to set up the system. He said, You set up a rabbinical uh, court system. You do it the right way. It should only lead uh, to peace and harmony and redemption for our people. I apologize. Normally we dive in Meyer in the other sanctuary. People can stay around. I don't have my keys on me, so I can't access the lights. That's correct. Okay, are you up keys for that? No matter what, that's right. That's you do? Right. Huh? Okay, Meyer will be in there in three minutes. We have keys. Yeah, I think that um, are you related to the Abramsons in Chicago? Yeah, my my niece is related to this. Okay, guys, thank you very much. Very nice. I just saw that last month. Thank you very much. I'm Leon Metzger's nephew, Mordecai Gilbert.
And I, you may not know, but I emailed you about eight years ago for a, for a Hedriska, and you emailed back within a few minutes without asking any questions. Well, well, I appreciate that. Thank, Thank you. you. Yes. My great grandfather um, was uh, the chief rabbi in Stockholm during the war, uh, Rabbi Yaakov Israel Zuber, and he had to tell women if they were a or not. That was intense. And I asked my grandmother if he was ever wrong. Okay. She said I want to tell you and uh, Rabbi Wright that we are sorry about so she wasn't allowed to be with that husband as she had gotten remarried or the new yeah, 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 yeah. That's what happens, but you know, he followed the, the normal principles he really, and he like, whatever he ruling best, was the appropriate ruling under the yeah. circumstances. I think I may have read a sefer that he wrote. That he didn't write about smicha uh, when a smicha is uh, conferred to somebody who's not deserving. That the, might have been um, his brother, Nasa Nasa. Oh, yeah, yes, yes, that's who it was, Nasa Nasa. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember the name also of the sefer. That's great, exactly great who it was. Uncle. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, Thank you very much, Rabbi. How do you manage such a busy schedule? You must get help. Um, well, I do have help in the Beth in, in, in Chicago. We have tell one. Tell my mother. Uh, 